Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Builder Biden, the president plans over $2 trillion of infrastructure spending. Macron's move, France heads into a third lockdown as COVID cases soar. And semiconductor splurge, the world's largest chip maker, investing $100 billion to ensure supplies. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be back with you. The first day of a new month and a new quarter. Now, it may be April 1st, but this is no April fall. Q1 was filled with speculative stock surges, digital NFT splurges and SPAC merger urges. Enough already. It was also a profitable one for investors driven by massive stimulus support and reopening hopes, resulting in record highs for stocks, rising bond yields and fears of both inflation and froth. Well, we'll be speaking to St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard later in the show about Federal Reserve policy. Can Chair Jerome Powell remain patient as the U.S. enters a historic new period of economic activism and what might force them to act sooner rather than later? We'll discuss. For now, Wall Street is green pre-market. Investors digest the stunning $2.3 trillion worth of reflation revelations from President Biden. Henceforth, as we've described, known as Biden the Builder, there's massive spending on infrastructure, green energy and R&D, along with support programs for the poorest in the nation. The question remains, of course, what can actually get done and how will it ultimately be financed? We'll discuss spending support in the United States, of course, supports the world, too. And that's apparent already in the record pace of EU manufacturing growth last month, fueled by a surge in orders from China and the United States. Asia stocks were firmer in today's session, too. Japan's Tankan survey shows business leaders optimistic about the future for the first time in over a year. There's clearly a multi-speed recovery going on. But for the United States, the question remains, can the nation build back better? Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to uh, have you with us. Big Thank you. I'm back. Big government is back, of course, uh, seemingly, according to uh, President Biden, too. I mean, let's be clear, this is a massive expansion of what we're defining as infrastructure, too. Uh, $400 billion in senior care. I'm not judging. I'm observing here. Now the debate, I think, is raging whether this is targeted enough, what's productive in terms of economic growth, and, of course, how we pay for it, Christine. And this is a starting point, too. We've been hearing from members of the White House for several days that they're open to negotiations with some Democrats, by the way, and and Republicans on where we should go from here and how we should uh, pay for it. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, uh, just in the past hour or so issuing this uh, statement explaining that this is uh, the biggest chance in 80 years. 80 years of work can be done to fix America's infrastructure and move forward in a way 
that we haven't done before. And the president yesterday saying this is not tinkering around the edges. Make no mistake. This is big and bold uh, by design. In fact, Julia, I think if you really think about it, since the days of Ronald Reagan in the United States, that's when you really had the dawn of this idea that don't expect government to work for you. Government works against you. This is, I think, for the first time, a very clear signal that this administration is trying to say, no, public investment is a good thing and can work for you. There are two parts of American infrastructure. There's the stuff we drive on. There's the technology backbone of America. But there's also the human infrastructure. And both of those things uh, go together. So really a new way of thinking about government and public investment here. The pay for it part of it, I think, is fascinating. You know, companies and the big business lobbies and trade groups are are grumbling about raising taxes. The White House has a, a chance here to really be clear. This is about taking back some of the Trump-era tax cuts, not all of them, and leaving corporate tax rates still below where they were in 2016. I think that's some framing you're going to see in the days ahead. Yeah, we'll talk about that framing, no doubt. But I like your point about human capital and human infrastructure, because we have to quantify some of the goodwill and the fluffy stuff here, too, and recognize that that can be additive to an economy as well. It's essential for an economy. Christine, great to have you with us. Thank you. Christine Raymond's there. To Europe now. New cases of COVID-19 are rising so fast that France is going into its third national lockdown on Saturday. The French president says new COVID variants have created an epidemic within an epidemic. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, it was tough reading this morning, tough for people in France like yourself. Talk us through the details of this latest lockdown. It was also, I think, uh, Julia, a tough uh, announcement for Emmanuel Macron to make. He's been resisting this for weeks and weeks. In the end, buckling under the pressure of those figures, as you say, uh, those rises in new cases uh, that uh, foster spreading new variants, and in particular the one first identified in the United Kingdom, it now represents nearly 90% of new cases in Germany. It's by far the vast majority of cases here in France, in Italy and elsewhere. And of course, it spreads faster. And that, of course, forced Emmanuel Macron to make that speech uh, that he'd been resisting so much so far. So for the next month, France under another partial lockdown. But there are fears, of course, about what that will mean for ICUs going forward. Because, of course, as the health minister reminded us this morning, uh, the epidemic, uh, they think, could peak in the next eight to ten days. The figures here in France. And there is of course, a two-week gap with entries into ICUs already under such pressure in so many parts of France, Julia. Yeah, and what makes it so hard to bear, of course, is the slow pace of vaccine rollout. And the World Health Organization actually referred to this today in a quite astonishing manner. It called it unacceptably slow. Unacceptably slow and reminding also, Julia, that uh, essentially, it is any delay in the vaccine process simply prolongs the epidemic. And then, of course, there is the associated risk that variants then spread, begin to spread uh, more quickly, which is exactly what has happened. Uh, still questions of supply. Emmanuel Macron vowing uh, last night in his speech to get the vaccination program up and running. But the ambitious targets that Europeans have set themselves do seem a long way off with supply issues in many parts of the European Union still. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, those deliveries should begin at some point in April and should help. Uh, but they've got a lot more people to vaccinate a lot more quickly if they're going to get ahead uh, of this particular curve, Julia. Yeah, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for uh, that update there. All right, now to the fight for democracy in Hong Kong. A court has convicted nine prominent activists, including media tycoon Jimmy Lay, over the revolts in the 2019 protests. Will Ripley has the details. It is surreal and almost chilling to be standing here outside the West Kowloon Court building where it's dead quiet after court proceedings have wrapped up. 
and compare that with the protest that led media mogul Jimmy Lai and eight others to this court. A protest in August of 2019, hundreds of thousands of people packing into Victoria Park for a legal demonstration that became an unauthorized assembly when those people decided to leave the park and march towards Central. Hong Kong police decided that Jimmy Lai and the other defendants were responsible for that march by leading the protesters. And they had so much evidence, video, text messages, anything that you can think of that they could find was brought out here in court over a 20-day trial. And now all nine of these men, guilty of unauthorized assembly with a maximum of five years in prison. We saw Martin Lee, considered the father of Hong Kong democracy, silent as he walked past the row of cameras. Lee Chuk Yan did stand in front of the cameras and he had a message. And if we are sentenced to jail in the future for this case or many other cases that are following, it is our badge of honor to be in jail for working together with the people of Hong Kong. Lee Chuk Yong also thanked his supporters who came here to court, and he urged them to keep up the fight for democracy here in Hong Kong, a fight that is becoming increasingly dangerous for anyone who dares to speak about freedom in a place firmly under Beijing's control. Will Ripley, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. George Floyd's family is, quote, suffering as they watch video of his death being played at the trial of Derek Chauvin. A lawyer for the family told CNN it's hard for them to watch the newly released footage, which comes from body cams worn by Chauvin and other officers. His trial for murder resumes in the next hour. On Wednesday, emotions ran high in the courtroom as jurors saw the new body cam footage and heard first-hand testimony from those who witnessed George Floyd's death. Here's the latest from CNN's Josh Campbell. More emotional testimony in the Derek Chauvin trial Wednesday from eyewitnesses who were just feet away from the final moments of George Floyd's life. Like 61-year-old Charles McMillan, who took the stand and broke down in tears as the prosecution played this body cam video. Mama! Yeah, Mama, I feel helpless. I don't have a mama either. I understand him. McMillan, who frequently walks in that Minneapolis neighborhood, happened upon the scene and testified he saw officers arresting Floyd. He is heard urging Floyd to cooperate with police as they tried to get him in a squad car. You can't win. I'm not trying to win. So were you trying to um, just help him to make the situation easy? On Wednesday, the jury was presented body cam footage from all four officers. Much of it had never before been made public. The prosecution presented nearly every moment of interaction between the four officers and Floyd from several angles, including the initial moment when two officers approached Floyd while he was inside his car. Officer Lane draws a gun on Floyd. Right now. Officers then remove him from his vehicle. So sorry. Step out and face away. Please don't shoot me, Mr. Officer. Please don't shoot me, man. Floyd is cuffed and walked to the police car. I'm just claustrophobic. Chauvin's body cam footage shows his first interaction with Floyd before his body camera falls to the ground. A struggle ensues between Floyd and the officers. The car. You me in the front? Please. No, you're not I'm Chauvin, the man wearing black gloves, places his hands around Floyd's neck as another officer tries to restrain him. 
you hear Chauvin's voice for the first time. Can I control this guy because he's a sizable guy? Yeah, not that. I thought he didn't get in the car. Looks like he's probably on something. It takes several minutes before you hear an officer raise concerns. Roll on the side. I just worry about the fed delirium or whatever. The jury also saw surveillance video from inside the Cup Foods showing George Floyd shortly before he was detained. Floyd was suspected of paying for cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. When I um, saw the bill, I noticed that it had a blue pigment to it, kind of how a $100 bill will have. And I found that odd, so I assumed that it was fake. The cashier, 19-year-old Christopher Martin, told his manager his suspicions, and they tried unsuccessfully to bring Floyd back into the store. When that failed, one of his co-workers called the police. Martin testified he feels guilty about what happened that day, a common theme felt by many of the eyewitnesses this week. Why guilt? Um, if I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. The lawyer for Myanmar's deposed leader says Aung San Suu Kyi faces a fifth charge of violating the country's Official Secrets Act. Suu Kyi appeared via video link in court earlier today, two months after she was ousted in a military coup. Her lawyers said she appeared to be in good physical condition and she demanded the right to meet with them privately. The chairman of the Suez Canal says losses from the blockage of the canal by a ship ever given could amount to a billion dollars. He says authorities are working around the clock to get shipping through the waterway after it was blocked for six days. And all ships that were delayed should get through by Friday or Saturday. All right, still to come here on First Move, Chip Challenge. Taiwanese Apple supplier TSMC investing $100 billion to meet a global chip shortage. And the Federal Reserve's James Bullard sees the U.S. making a strong recovery from COVID-19. He joins us next. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are set for a positive start to the second quarter of the year. Tech building on yesterday's 1.5% advance as bond yields steady. There's also plenty of talk about the effect that President Biden's $2.3 trillion spending proposal would have on an already strengthening U.S. economy, assuming it gets done. A robust U.S. jobs report also expected tomorrow, with some predicting a gain of as many as 1 million jobs for the month of March. That said... Too many Americans still need assistance. 719,000 filing for first-time claims last week. Some 18 million Americans still collecting some form of jobless benefit. The Federal Reserve's James Bullard, among those predicting a strong rebound for the U.S. economy, he sees unemployment falling to 4.5%, GDP growing by 6.5% this year, and expects inflation to pick up to 2.5%. Joining us now is James Bullard, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. President Bullard, Jim, great to have you on the show once again. Optimistic on the U.S. recovery. Just talk us through where we are today and what you see going forward. Well, I think the data on the pandemic in the U.S. Uh, suggests that the pandemic is coming to a close. There continue to be risks out there, but it's certainly very encouraging. We've got a vaccine rollout uh, that has gained uh, steam. And uh, if you look at the data, that looks very good. And that suggests that the U.S. economy is poised to boom 
in the uh, year ahead here. Uh, as you said, I've got 6.5% uh, growth for the U.S. economy. That's very, very strong growth for this economy, um, possibly faster than China this year. Um, and, and I think labor markets will improve uh, dramatically from where they are right now, uh, but we have to get the pandemic uh, under better control than what we have today, but it, uh, we're, we're moving in the right direction. So uh, I am pretty optimistic that we can get this boom to occur. We can bring this episode to a close for the U.S., when we're talking about and using words like boom, it makes me think we're out of the crisis. Are we out of the crisis, Jim, at this no, stage? No, I think we're still in the crisis because, uh, we, you know, we still have cases. Uh, if you look at uh, there's a lot of human tragedy here, you've got the fatalities per day per million still uh, somewhat elevated but declining and predicted to continue to decline as we go through April and May here. And so... Uh, that's the sense in which we're going to be able to bring this under control. We've got more and more people getting uh, vaccinated every day, and uh, that looks set to continue. Also, we're vaccinating, uh, you know, on average, the, the more vulnerable parts of the population. That should help bring fatalities down dramatically and increase confidence in the economy and allow us to uh, get the rest of production up and running and uh, allow people to go back to work. So uh, there are a lot of good things happening. Uh, there are risks. It is a crisis. You're never sure uh, what might lie just around the corner. And uh, we're certainly aware of that. We're tracking the data every day. Jim, you referred to the data, and I do think this is important because certainly for bond market investors, they're looking at the data. They're predicting ahead and jumping ahead as they always do. And sort of assuming that the Fed must be talking about tighter policy in some form going forward. I, I, Jay Powell obviously made his comments about the bond market. You're keeping an eye on it. You're not worried by the level of yields. But is there any level upon which bond yields, even in an orderly manner, could move to that the Fed would go, we're uncomfortable with this? Yeah, I would say the uh, run-up in the 10-year yield since the, uh, you know, in, in recent months has been, uh, in reaction to better forecasts for the U.S. economy and higher inflation expectations, uh, the the tips market is suggesting that uh, inflation expectations uh, have moved up quite a bit um, from where they were earlier. And so uh, it makes sense that you'd have uh, somewhat higher uh, longer-term yields with this kind of outlook. And, uh, and so I think that part is a good sign. It's healthy, uh, a healthy part of the economy. You know, could this run away from us and, and, uh, and, and actually damage the economy? I don't think we're close to that right now. The, the levels are at just now at uh, the pre-pandemic level, and those were kind mm -hmm. of uh, low compared to where they've been historically. So I think, um, you know, I think we like the market signal from the from the tenure on on the effectiveness of our policies and and the uh, reading on inflation expectations that we can get from it. Is the message to the market from the Federal Reserve, though, to your point, we won't let this get away from us? 
Well, we're certainly uh, committed to our inflation target of 2%, but we've uh, missed our inflation target of 2% on the low side ever since we uh, <laughs> said we had an inflation target. So the first thing that happened, uh, you know, we started in 2012 and we were right at 2%, and then uh, inflation's basically been running below that. Uh, certainly on average, uh, since that time. So what we want to do here, I think, is uh, uh, as the boom occurs and the pandemic comes to a close, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get more inflation than we're used to and we'll allow some of that to flow through to inflation expectations, recenter inflation expectations at the 2% target, and uh, this will improve credibility that uh, we really mean it when we say we're going to hit 2% inflation and we really are going to hit that on average over time. Uh, so we'll probably let inflation run above target for some time. And then uh, only after all that happens, then we'll look at, uh, at policy normalization. Yeah, so you wrote a great blog on this, explaining some of the drivers of inflation and what they're indicating right now. And I think the conclusion to your point was, look, we actually would, on average, over a period of time, actually like to hit our target. So you're comfortable if inflation goes above 2% and stays there for a period of time. In fact, you'd welcome that. Yeah, uh, the new framework does suggest that uh, we will uh, be looking for inflation to run above target for a time to uh, you know, in some sense, make up for the past misses. Uh, we're, we're vague about exactly how much that would be, but the spirit of it is definitely that uh, we want inflation to run above target. Uh, and even when it does that, we'll allow that to occur for some time. And then um, hopefully this will uh, recenter inflation expectations and get us on a better uh, footing with respect to our inflation target than we've been on in the last decade. Jim, there was also a, a post from the St. Louis Fed, and you were looking at the mental and physical impact of evictions. And it ties to what you were saying earlier about the humanitarian crisis that the country's been through and remains in. How is the Federal Reserve, perhaps in a different way than we've ever looked at, at policy, monetary policy in the past, pricing that in when you're looking at changes and adjustments to policy? Because the emotional, the physical impact of what we've been through with this pandemic and are still going through also has to play in how you calibrate policy going forward. The question is, how? Does it just make you slow to adjust? Yeah, I think that uh, blog on uh, uh, evictions by Faith Weekly, you know, was, uh, you know, fact-based and it talked about uh, the uh tragedy of any eviction. I think you're talking about, a, a, you know, family can't make the payments. Everybody's upset. The the person that owns the building's up, upset. They've got a non-paying customer. Um, so uh, usually associated with some kind of, uh, you, know, you know, problem inside the family, unemployment or, or more serious problems. Um, so we'd, we'd certainly like to see those kinds of things uh, better handled than they are in the society today. Uh, I don't, we don't have any direct mandate on that. Um, we're more about the macro economy and the big picture. Um, but uh, uh, to the extent we can get a, a, a smoothly working economy, um, we'll hopefully have less of this type of problem than we would otherwise have. Yeah, it's tough for the Federal Reserve because, as you point out, it's not part of your mandate, but it's all part of the the sort of bigger economic picture. 
infrastructure spending. Jim, what do you think of the $2.3 trillion? What's that going to mean for the economy? And can you even guesstimate how much gets done and how it gets paid for and factor it into predictions at this stage? Or you just stay well away until it happens? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know. I, I, I haven't seen the uh, I haven't seen the uh, details of the proposal, so I'm, you know we're waiting through all that, and we'll get we'll get briefed on. There'll be plenty of time because this this kind of thing takes a long time uh, to move through the Congress. Um, I will say in in the big picture that the the notion of infrastructure and really a capital budget for the U.S. The U.S. doesn't have a capital budget, uh, as far as I know. Um, you know, this is something that should be done annually. It should, you should be updating and investing in your public capital uh, all the time. And uh, and to some extent, the federal government does this. Uh, a lot of infrastructure is also local, uh, so that's just a factor to keep in mind. So if you, if you do too much at the federal level, then you just get less spending at the local level, and, and it all kind of washes out. So it's unclear in our in our federal system, like how much should be at the state level and the local level, and how much should be paid for at the national level. Um, and these these things are harder to get through Congress than you'd imagine. Uh, you would think you could put something on in every district, and everyone would sign on, but it doesn't seem to work out that way. It's more contentious than that, and uh, and so we'll see uh, what happens this time around, and and whether uh, but. Uh, from a macroeconomist point of view, you know, this is spending that goes out over 10 years, and so this isn't really the same as the previous uh, fiscal interventions, which were very much geared toward uh, current spending and, and what I would call the keep people whole policy through the pandemic. That was quite successful, I would say. This is a different kettle of fish where you're talking about the long-run productive capacity of the economy and of the nation. How much public capital should we have? Do we have the right amount? Do we have it in the right places? Uh, uh, those are great questions and great things to debate. Yes, and should be debated. Great to have you with us, Jim, as always. Jim Bullock there, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Great to have you with us. Thank All you. All right, after the break, who said blockchain was boring? Ripple's first quarter had lawsuits, couplings and decouplings. The CEO follows the opening rail. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, the first day of the month. And the last trading day of the shortened week, of course, we're seeing gains across the board led by tech. The S&P 500 hitting the 4,000-point milestone. Look, we're just a couple of points below that as we speak. Stocks weathered a number of challenges in the first quarter, including the blow-up last week of investment fund Archegos Capital. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen now pledging to re-establish U.S. oversight of hedge funds, saying leveraged-up funds are a threat to the financial system. Higher oil prices could one day pressure the global recovery to oil on the rise as we await the outcome of today's OPEC Plus meeting. No significant change in production is expected. The US today stressing to Saudi Arabia the importance of, quote, affordable energy. Oil up some 20 percent year to date. OK, it's been a busy quarter for the blockchain-based payment network Ripple. It's fighting a lawsuit with the United States regulators over whether the digital token XRP used to facilitate payments is a security rather than an asset. A security 
course, faces greater regulation. It's parted ways with remittance giant MoneyGram, but left the door open to a future relationship. And it's signing deals in Asia with a stake in a cross-border payment hub. Brad Garlinghouse is the CEO of Ripple and joins us now. Wow, Brad, you've been busy. Let's talk about the lawsuit first. You've been very vocal about fighting this, why you see it as an attack on the industry rather than just on Ripple. But let's talk contingency plans. What happens if this lawsuit is lost by Ripple and yourselves. What will it mean for the network? Well, good morning, Julia, uh, and happy April Fool's Day. But as you've already pointed out in your show this morning, uh, topics like these are definitely not a joke. Uh, you know, we take this suit very seriously. Uh, the good news has been that people like Mary Jo White, the former chair of the SEC, has come out and said that she views this as dead wrong. I think the SEC is wrong on the facts, they're wrong on the law. I think we will prevail. But as you say, you know, there is a chance, of course, that the court system does not go that direction. The good news for Ripple is we've continued to sign customers. We've signed over 20 new uh, you know, financial institutions around the world as customers since the SEC filed their lawsuit. And I think we'll continue to see the network grow very rapidly in non-U.S. customers. The challenge is this drives blockchain innovation and crypto activity outside the U.S., which I don't think is in the interest of the United States in any way. Can you operate going forward, though, without XRP? I mean, you and I have discussed in the past using alternatives, being operable with alternatives. Is that the solution in the United States, if necessary? That certainly could be part of the solution. You know, I think there is a, a certain you know, strangeness that the SEC has kind of picked winners here. It said that Bitcoin is not a security. It said that Ether is not a security. But really, everything else, I think, is kind of at risk, particularly given what they have done in the final lawsuit against Ripple. But, you know, we could do that. We, we've always thought about our product as how do we solve a customer's problem first and foremost. And I think that has served our growth. And it's a reason why we have seen so much activity now, billions and billions of dollars of transactions across RippleNet, our, our network for payments. You know, a lot of the XRP holders that I've spoken to are upset about the personal aspect of this claim, too, and that the SEC says you sold millions of dollars worth of XRP while making ambitious statements about Ripple's progress. Brad, how do you respond to those allegations? Could you have been more transparent? It's OK to diversify holdings into other things. You just need to be more transparent. You know, I'm really looking forward to the facts coming out in the court case. You know, this is something I haven't commented on publicly because the, the, the wheels of justice kind of move slowly. And I think it's important that we get the facts out. We've heard one side of the story from the SEC. In fact, I think as the, the facts come out, what we'll find is that we have been Ripple and I have been as more transparent than anyone else in the crypto industry about our activity, about what we're doing. And so, again, I, I find a certain irony in that the SEC would bring a lawsuit against us particularly personally, because what they're saying is that not just that we should have known and we should, we've acted in bad faith, when the SEC themselves haven't really said, well, they know for sure that XRP is a security. In their own court filings, they've said that the court will determine that, which of course brings a contradiction that if the court's going to determine that, how could I personally have known that the SEC would view XRP as a security? So you're saying I have nothing to hide, Ripple has nothing to hide, effectively bring it on. I, I, absolutely, Julia. I mean, as you know, and you and I have spoken a number of times, given your expertise in this this segment, and Ripple has for years been incredibly transparent with our quarterly markets report about what we're doing with our XRP. And we've really asked the industry as a whole, I mean, if the crypto industry as a whole wants to be mature, I think that level of transparency is needed. You know, the painful part of this is the lack of clarity, the lack of um, regulatory um 
clarity that you have now in the United States, even as, even as you're doing things in, in other countries. Do you think in this period there's a risk that the progress that's been made in places like uh, decentralized finance um, or a global stable coin perhaps as a window of opportunity to overtake what you're trying to do with your payment network? Is that a risk to your point about suppressing certain parts of the market and innovation? Yeah, I mean, look, you are absolutely right that the, the lack of clarity and lack of certainty affects the whole industry. And I think that's what Ripple is experiencing. And the SEC filed another lawsuit earlier this week. And so I think here in the United States, the industry has the risk of falling behind. But I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, what Ripple is solving is a cross-border payments problem. And we are working with some of and certainly speaking to many central banks around the world about some of the, the stable coin initiatives for central bank issued digital currencies. And we actually think that's actually helpful to what Ripple is doing in solving a cross-border payments problem. Ultimately, we, we saw the Obama administration be clear that XRP is viewed as a currency. And we think we'll actually end up there, uh, hopefully, as a new administration comes into the SEC. Let's talk more broadly about the future of, of regulation, Brad. And a lot of media discussion is focusing in on, on Bitcoin. We can't hide from the fact that this is the one that people are focusing on at this moment in time in particular. Someone in the industry said to me this week, Bitcoin is too big to fail, that the regulators can come in and mount an attack, but they'll fail. But where they perhaps could create waves is that they can take regulated businesses and say, you can't mess with this anymore. You have to separate yourselves. How do you see this playing out? Do you think mounting an attack from regulators is likely? And if so, why would it come? You know, I think Bitcoin is certainly here to stay. I mean, you're now talking about the crypto industry, which, you know, you and I probably first started talking about the crypto industry together when it was maybe a hundred to two hundred billion dollar market. Yes. You know, say it's 10x <laughs> that, really two trillion dollars. And, you know, whether we characterize it as too big to fail or not, I think at the end of the day, we should focus on are we solving real problems with these technologies? If it's just speculation and it's just speculative hype, that will not sustain. But you know, Bitcoin's solving a real problem. There's no question about that. And that's a store of value. Now, Bitcoin has not served it, what some thought might be the case in solving a payments problem. You know, when you use proof of work or mining to validate transactions, that consumes a massive amount of energy. You know, Bill Gates was recently quoted as saying that Bitcoin transactions are the least efficient payment transaction that man has ever created. And that doesn't mean that Bitcoin goes away. In fact, I'm, I believe Bitcoin will be very successful. It's the reason why we at Ripple are using XRP. It's about 100,000 times more efficient on a per transaction basis in terms of energy costs, speed of transaction. It's a much more efficient for something like a payment. You know, it's interesting because people are just starting to talk about this and recognize the sustainability questions, particularly as companies like Tesla, for example, PayPal, companies that have huge or relative degrees of commitment to sustainability, are investing in something that's considered, you know, environmentally incredibly costly. My interest in this sort of pretends to the role that these individual currencies play, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or XRP in the sort of future development and changes that we see in the in the financial sector. Do these issues like the environmental costs and the relative costs hold these digital assets back? Look, the way I think about this is the industry needs to come together. And I think that if we want to see these technologies have the impact we think they can have in really revolutionizing how the financial systems work, not just in payments, but in maybe 
insurance or a security settlement. There's a whole bunch of transactions that blockchain can make more efficient for consumers, for businesses. But I think we need to acknowledge that sometimes version one of technologies need to be iterated. And certainly the power consumption associated proof of work as a validation. And I think it's, I give credit to the Ethereum community, which has been putting a lot of effort into transitioning off of a proof of work into what you I'm sure are very familiar with proof of stake. So I think things like that will allow those technologies to scale into the future and to serve customers effectively, but not acknowledging that power and carbon footprint are real issues, I think is, it could limit the success of these technologies. Yeah, don't be a denier, accept it and work out how we raise efficiency or what the utility value is relative to the cost. Brad, very quickly, exactly. I know you are a Bitcoin investor. Do you think Bitcoin's too big to fail? I think Bitcoin is not going away, that is for sure. I think yeah, the whole crypto industry is not going away. So yes, the answer is yes. 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 <laughs> Brad, great to chat to you. Keep us posted, please. Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple there. Thank you. All right, coming up on the show, a Pan-African project to stop the spread of the Sahara Desert. That's next. Stay with us. Now to today's call to earth, where we look at desertification. 40% of lands on our planet are at risk of desertification, and it's only getting worse. According to the United Nations, by 2030, at least 50 million people will have to leave their homes if trends are not reversed. That's why Rolex Awards laureate Sarah Toomey is drawing a line in the sand. The Sahara Desert. Remote. Romantic. It's also a threat. What I love about the desert is uh, it's very peaceful, but in the same time it's very scary because when desert enters the houses of people, pushing them to leave uh, because they have no more livelihoods in their communities, it's scaring me. Desertification is a process which transforms once arable land into a barren environment. It's something that Sarah Toomey witnessed firsthand. My grandparents, they were growing olives and under the olives trees, they were growing uh, beautiful gardens with vegetables and other crops. Now, let's say uh, 25 years after, they don't grow anymore their food. So you have to buy food from the shops. And I think it's very sad. Desertification can be reversed. Toomey's project, Acacias for All, has cultivated almost 700,000 deep-rooted trees in the region, improving soil structure and allowing for other trees and crops to be planted nearby. It's very easy to plant a tree. It's not easy to grow a tree. And that's why, what I learned in Tunisia from just planting acacia trees into growing agroecological ecosystems with communities, creating value chains that sustain the ecosystem. Toomey's impact in Tunisia led her to want to do more. She's been invited to join a programme of epic proportions. Great Green Wall is about giving life back to the desert, to the Sahel. The Great Green Wall is a patchwork of restored lands across the entire continent expected to stretch 8,000 kilometers by 2030, covering 100 million hectares of land across 11 countries, 
The aim is to create a natural shield against desertification. Up to now, the Great Green Wall initiative had filled up about 18% of the, the objective. So yes, you have another 80% to go. I, I am optimistic. It's a question of making sure that that part of Africa gets the attention it deserves. The Great Green Wall has the goal of creating up to 10 million new jobs, securing people's income as part of the strategy. They need to eat, they need to, to improve their livelihoods, and then they, they will think about their ecosystem. In January 2021, the initiative received a boost of $14 billion in funding. Toomey is advising on how that money is allocated on the ground. Sarah Toomey has a tremendous experience in Tunisia working with grassroots organizations. She perfectly understands what the needs are, but also which are needed to make the project come to reality. For Toomey, Desertification is a threat that affects us all, and the work is urgent. If we don't do it now, we will never have the opportunity to do it again after. We are all on the same planet, we are all concerned by the same problem, because when during the summer in Paris, we have uh, temperatures like 40 degrees, or we have sand of Sahara that is covering the ice, uh, we see concretely, directly the impact that desertification can have on all of us. We'll continue showing inspirational stories like this as part of the initiative at CNN. And let us know what you're doing to answer the call with the hashtag call to earth. More to come. Answering the global semiconductor shortage, the world's biggest contract chipmaker is pouring in more money to keep up with demand. Taiwan's TSMC has already said it would spend around $28 billion on chips this year. Now they're saying they will spend $100 billion over three years. Claire Sebastian is following the story. Just walk us through the details because this is a monster amount to spend, but it's also a monster challenge at a time of great digitization and use of technology. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's clear from this announcement just how acute the the increase in demand has been that we've seen uh, over the course of the last year, Julia, the pandemic has accelerated digital trends. This is something that uh, TSMC uh, has pointed out. Things like remote work have, have massively increased demand for things like computers, smartphones, you know, laptops, tablets, TVs, all of these things that are intensive in their use uh, of semiconductors, uh, of microchips. So this is why TSMC is having to do this. They say that they are need to increase capacity to keep up with demand. So, you know, really, this is part of the race that we're seeing in the global semiconductor industry. The backdrop, of course, you know, multiple industries have been affected by this, you know, but the worst of all is the automakers. We've seen many having to even shut down production as they wait for more chips to come in. Now, look, this is an industry with long lead times. Don't expect to see those bottlenecks resolved overnight, but clearly the race is on between the chip makers to, to, to get as big of a market share of this new demand as they possibly can. 
Yeah, the race is on. We spoke to the new Intel CEO when they made that monster announcement about $20 billion. And it was exactly what I asked him. Is $20 billion enough when the Taiwanese are going to be spending $28 billion? And now they've come back with something five times the size of Intel. This is worrying. This should be worrying, I think, for the other players. Yeah, I think this has certainly puts down the gauntlet. Intel's announcement was pretty big. Uh, and of course, it, it also was part of a slight shift in strategy. They are now uh, moving into what's called the foundry business as well, which is what TSMC does, essentially contract manufacturing, where they don't design their own chips, they just manufacture uh, for other people. So Intel's going to start doing that as well, putting it in direct competition uh, with the Taiwanese company, uh, TSMC. But look, Intel and others are banking not just on their own private money. They want government investment as well, particularly uh, in the United States. Biden's infrastructure plan uh, unveiled yesterday includes, you know, about 50 billion, uh, most of which could go to the semiconductor industry. So it's clear the government is is sort of invested in this as well. And that's because it's not just important increasing capacity, Julia. It's about where the capacity is. This is an intensely vulnerable supply chain for microchips. A statistic for you just quickly. Uh, there, are, According to the Semiconductor Industry Association, there are more than 50 points across the value chain where one region holds more than 65% of global market share. That makes the supply chain intensely vulnerable. And it'll take a long time and a lot of money uh, to build in extra sort of redundancy into that supply chain. Yeah, and such a great point, Claire, because that's what I was going to ask you next. If the US government wants to be premier in this sphere, then they have to invest too. So that $50 billion is a critical add-on. But even then, still not matching what one company in Taiwan is doing. Hmm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, one last look at the market. A new quarter on Wall Street, of course, and a fresh record high for the S&P 500, pushing above the 4,000 level for the first time, just a touch below that right now. The question is, can we close above 4,000 at the end of the session today? Stocks, of course, higher as President Biden proposes $2.3 trillion in additional U.S. spending for infrastructure projects, green energy and social programs, among other things. Over the next 10 years, of course, the new spending, if passed, would give a further boost to an already strengthening U.S. economy. President Biden calling his plan a once-in-a-generation investment in the future of America. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll be back tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.